We know there are times where you're just too busy to sort through the mass of information that comes your way. So to make it easier for you to stay informed, subscribe to The Morning Agenda, WITF's news podcast, supported by the City of Lancaster. Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC, providing primary and advanced specialty care throughout all of central Pennsylvania and beyond. A list of providers in the area can be found at upmc.com slash findadoc. Many of us made New Year's resolutions. One may have been to reduce or stop drinking alcohol. It can be a challenge for those who drink on a regular basis, either on social occasions or as part of their lives. Dry January may be or may not be the path to that resolution, but it's how some who don't drink a how how some don't drink alcohol for a month to sample sobriety and possibly make not drinking permanent. Annie Grace explored alcohol use, the psychological reasons we drink, and how we are influenced to drink in her book, The Naked Mind. The book became a movement. Annie Grace is with us today. Annie Grace, welcome to the program. No, thank you so much for having me. All right, so let's start with Dry January. What is Dry January? So Dry January actually started in the UK as a charity movement to create awareness around alcohol dependence and and problems. And now it's it's gone global and it's just become synonymous with people taking a break for 30 days from alcohol and starting the new year kind of with a reset. When you say taking a break from alcohol, that sounds very simple. Is it that simple? It really depends kind of where your psychology is at. And it's funny that I say psychology and not physiology, not your body, because actually, if you look at the body, just the first day or two, even the first week that your body is going to be rebalanced, rebooted, but the whole 30 days, it becomes much more of a mental challenge. And I believe that that's true because we have so much influence in programming that alcohol is the thing to do. It's necessary for everything we can imagine from going out to dinner to relaxing in front of the game to, you know, enjoying celebrations, all of these sorts of things. So we have this huge psychological nudge in our minds saying, hey, drink, drink, drink. And that's what makes it complicated. It's not really the physiological aspects. Most people who drink are not alcoholics. They're not chemically dependent. In fact, according to the CDC, only 10% of excessive drinkers are chemically dependent. So a tiny fraction of the population. But for a lot of us, it's just because we believe we want to drink. And so that's what makes it complicated. So, okay, let's try to relate the two. Dry January to what you just said. We believe we want to drink. So how does dry January influence you to not want to drink? Well, it's interesting because I think dry January, if if done, I'm going to say the quote wrong way with air quotes, can actually make the problem worse. So I've seen it so many times where people go into it and they are white knuckling it. They're using willpower. They're going through the entire month just saying sheer force of will. I'm not going to drink. And they're reinforcing misery because it's basically you're putting yourself on an alcohol diet. You're saying, I love French fries and ice cream, but I'm not letting myself have them. And then come February 1st, you are (laughs) 
two sheets to the wind. You've overdone it. And you have this little tick box in your mind where you said, okay, I proved to myself I don't have a problem. I did a whole 30 days. So obviously I don't have a problem. Let's just go back to drinking for the rest of the year. And I think that actually reinforces the fact that we like to and want to drink. I suggest approaching dry January with an experiment mentality, which means, you know, put down the blame, put down the shame, just say, hey, what might it be like? Even if I don't make it the 30 days, what is going on with me? Why do I think I want to drink? What do I think it's providing me in terms of benefits? What is happening when I feel that nudge and that craving? Do I really want it? Or is it just that I've been told that I should want it? And getting really curious about what's going on inside of you can change the entire experience. So what you're talking about is a mindset, really, rather than those cravings or focusing on, I haven't drank, you know, I haven't had a drink now in uh, 15 days or 30 days. It's okay. How's my life different? How is my thinking different while I haven't been drinking? Is that a good way to describe it? Absolutely right. And I can relate this to my own journey where I did this both ways. I approached, you know, alcohol and my relationship with alcohol with a okay, I'm starting to have repercussions. This is becoming a problem. I had been drinking for about a decade. I was drinking up to two bottles of wine most nights and I was feeling hungover. I was regretting things I said and did. And I was like, oh, this is a problem. And I kept asking myself the same question. Am I an alcoholic? Is this a problem? And then I take breaks. I take a 30 day break or I take a week long break. Every single time I take a break, I'd feel deprived. I'd feel miserable. And I'd actually drink more when I went back to drinking. And that was the cycle I was on for years. And then one day I actually approached it with a completely different approach. I said, well, why am I drinking? So I stopped asking myself the questions, am I the problem? Am I an alcoholic? And I said, why? Why did I used to not need it? I remember being a kid. I didn't need alcohol to relax at those birthday parties. I remember being, you know, I didn't drink a lot in college. I remember not needing it to de-stress before finals. Why do I need it now? And I actually went on this very systematic research of, well, does it actually chemically relax you in the brain? What is it doing to our neurons, to our brain function? You know, does it actually make us feel better? And what I discovered is that a lot of that stuff is just totally not true. There are two things that alcohol actually does. It will numb you to the point of being unconscious. In fact, they used to use it in surgeries. And it will make it for the first 20 minutes after you have a drink, you feel that euphoric feeling. But you trade that for two to three hours for that same drink of kind of a downer feeling when the alcohol starts to leave your body. And as I started to do this research, I was my mind was blown. I couldn't shut up about it, to be honest, because I was like, wow, all of these reasons that my mindset had told me I should be drinking actually aren't chemically true in my body. It's it's not relaxing me. It's making my stress and anxiety worse. It's not making things more fun. Chemically in the body, alcohol actually robs you of your ability to feel joy from things that don't involve alcohol. So I'm feeling less happy over time. And as I realized all this stuff, my mindset shifted and I didn't want to drink. And one of the key foundations of how I look at anyone's relationship with alcohol is that without desire, there's no temptation. So if you shift your desire, which is buried in your mindset, in often your subconscious mindset, you're no longer tempted to drink. Mm. A couple things there. You said that you couldn't shut up about it. Uh, I imagine that you weren't uh, speaking about it a lot in a bar. 
<laughs> well, there was a time when we were in Las Vegas. I had newly stopped drinking. We were there on a couple's trip with three other couples, and they were all having drinks at the pool, and I couldn't shut up about it. It is amazing that these people are still friends with me today. <laughs> I was going to say, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they probably didn't want to hear. How did they respond to that? They're like, okay, okay. And they actually... I think it stressed them out and they got probably more drunk than they would have otherwise. <laughs> and that was a big aha moment for me is that fear and it, it doesn't work. You know, when we, when we scare ourselves and we're like, it causes cancer and it's so bad for you and it causes 60 degree diseases and the world health organization says there's no amount of safe alcohol. All of those things just cause stress. But as drinkers, we've trained ourselves to what do we do when we're stressed? We drink. So anything that causes stress actually creates more drinking. And so it's very counterintuitive. But if you say, I'm going to take away the stress. And I'm and so I did, I did with my close friends. I did shut up about it. Luckily, I get to be on radio shows like this where I can talk all I want about it. But the reality was that that was not the right approach to, to shove down my friends. So you were drinking two bottles of wine a night? Yes. Did yes. you consider yourself a problem drinker? It was interesting because that term, again, kept me further from not drinking. And so when I look back at it now, and and I remember when I stopped drinking, I I had friends be like, "Oh, Annie, I'm so sorry. It must have it must have gotten so bad. I'm so sorry you had to stop drinking." And I was thinking, "Wait a second. I'm the one not drinking anymore. I'm the one who feels really good right now. You don't have to feel sorry for me." And so it was so interesting because that idea, I don't, I don't identify like with the word alcoholic or even I, I never call myself sober. I actually say I drink as much as I want whenever I want. I just haven't wanted to drink in more than nine years now, but it's because I hold it so lightly and so loosely that way. It really is. If, if I was to tell myself, I'm never going to drink again, when would I know I was successful? Not until I'm dead. I would literally never know I was successful. And that psychological burden of never again, you can't have this. Just look at a toddler. You, they don't even want something until you tell them they can't have it. We're not any different than toddlers. As soon as we're told we can't have something, it makes it that we want that thing. And so I like to just work with how my brain works, which is say, hey, this isn't a problem. I just want to look really objectively at this substance. Is it adding to my life or is it taking away from my life? And I did that over the course of a year of research. And during that year, I kept drinking. I said, I'm going to keep drinking, but just find out what's true about alcohol. And the truth is we know collectively more about something like Advil or ibuprofen than we do about alcohol, yet we're consuming arguably much more alcohol as a society than ibuprofen. Hmm. So when you're around people who are drinking, you never have any cravings or you never think to yourself, well, I'd like to have a drink. So I'll, I'll tell you why. I was around people about three, three and a half months after I had stopped drinking. And again, I didn't have any rules for myself. So I wasn't in a situation where I was sober. I could never drink again. And it was St. Patrick's Day. And we were all sitting around the table and they were drinking these green beers and everybody was having so much fun. And it was a very like dinner party. Everybody was responsible. The kids were there. Everybody was going to drive their kids home. And I'm looking around this table and I'm thinking, these people are having a lot of fun. I certainly overreacted here. And I think that it's probably not that big of a deal. I probably, you know, I probably overreacted. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to find out, does alcohol itself do anything for me? 
Or is this fun because we're all together, we're all enjoying each other's company, the kids are playing, and it's fun. And so what I did is a few days after that, I bought two bottles of wine. I locked myself in my bedroom. I got out my iPhone and put it on a little tripod. And I filmed myself for the next three hours getting drunk and told the camera exactly how it felt the whole time. And that experience for me, it there was nothing fun. There was nothing fun. The edges of the room kind of went fuzzy. I remember thinking, this is going to be great. I'm going to, I'm going to get drunk. Then I'm going to go hang out. I didn't want to hang out. I felt a little nauseous. I kind of wanted to fall asleep. I started in the videos, which I could not watch for years. I started to yell at my kids. I was yelling at the dogs. The jokes that I was saying I thought were funny were not funny. I mean, it was the light went out of my eyes, my intelligence. It, it was so painful to watch these videos. And I now share them. I have a free alcohol experiment. I share them on day 28. And for so many people, they don't even have to go do the experiment themselves because they're like, wow. Because if you separate all the things that we're doing with alcohol that are really fun, going to that sporting event, you know, going to that dinner party, hanging out with friends, the barbecue outside, whatever, the vacation, those things are just inherently fun. And then the alcohol itself, it, it wasn't adding anything to it. So once I did that, no, I've, I've never had a craving after that. I'm curious. I think we all have been in situations where uh, we're not drinking, we're sober, totally sober, but we're around people who are drunk, people who are intoxicated. Seems like you've had occasion experiences where you can witness that much more. What do you witness when you're sober and others have had too much to drink? Oh, it's such a brilliant question because it was so interesting for this to kind of reveal itself to me because I was dead set on doing everything that I used to do in my life. I was like, we're if we're going out, I'm going out. So I remember one trip. I was in the UK. It was a business trip. We all went out to dinner. We all had so much fun at dinner. Everybody was drinking. I wasn't drinking. Then everybody said, let's go to an after party. Let's go to a bar. We walked into this bar. Everybody was still drinking, but the music was too loud. There was no ability for conversation. People were getting just sloppy. All the conversations that were happening stopped being intelligent, even though people thought they were more intelligent. And I'm looking around. I'm like, oh, am I really like, what's wrong with me? And I called my husband later that night and I was like, I was miserable. I thought I would still be having fun. And he goes, but what do you like to do? You like conversation. You like intelligent conversation. And what don't you like? You don't like just loud music and people being stupid. I mean, he's like, you just don't like that as a person, but alcohol allowed you to tolerate it. And I was like, that's so true. So my, my social life has changed and has evolved because I've been able to be really honest with myself about things I like. I also know people who still love going out to dance clubs sober or love doing karaoke sober. But so much of that numbing agent of alcohol was allowing me to do things that I didn't really like to do. And it's so interesting interesting because when I would go out, I'd be ready to like tell the inappropriate jokes, have fun, let loose immediately when I walked in the door. Everybody else was timid because they're waiting for their drinks to kick in. So I'd have to wait. And then there would be a little window where they'd have one or two drinks, but they'd still be themselves and we could joke around and it was super fun. And then they'd have three or four or five drinks. And then, you know, they just kind of like they're they're existing on a different plane than I was. 
And I was like, ah, oh, it's no longer fun anymore. So I mastered, I think it's called the Irish goodbye, which is just, no one even notices. You just leave. They think you stayed all night because they don't know any better. And then the next morning, everybody's like, oh, it wasn't that fun. I was like, it was great. <laughs> I know you don't remember after 10 p.m. <laughs> I'm just curious, something you said right before our break about calling your husband, talking to your husband. Does your husband drink? So it was so fascinating. After I wrote The Snake in Mind, he, I was like, you have to, you have to, read this book before it publishes. I was like, I talk about our sex life. I talk about intimate details here. You got to read it. So he read it in a day and he was like, okay, just so you know, don't expect anything. Don't expect me to stop drinking. And I would always, you know, I'd go to the liquor store. I'd buy him a six pack on the way home. I'd order him a drink. I I, I didn't want to put any pressure because for me, it was really important that this is his own journey, not, you know, and about probably two years after he had read the book, he looked at me, it's like, I don't think I've had a drink in about six months now. I was like, really? And it's been seven years for him now. He huh. realized he had a drink, but it was very accidental. It was just sort of like, I wasn't doing it and it, it became less important for him. You know, and I hate to even bring this up, but I, I, I've heard of a country song that you're not as much fun since I quit drinking. I mean, I, I'm <laughs> sure there are people who have that kind of attitude that I just can't have fun with alcohol, without alcohol. I had a really close friend. We have been friends since before we can remember because we met in preschool. And when I stopped drinking, she called me one day and I, I was busy with two little kids. I'd also written this book. And so a lot was going on in my life. And she goes, you know, we haven't hung out in a while. It's like, oh my gosh, you're right. We haven't. And she goes, I have a confession to make. And I was like, what? And she goes, I just, I don't know how it's going to be without you drinking. We've been drinking together since, you know, we turned 21 and I don't know how it's going to be. And I was like, well, why don't you come over and let's find out? And so she came over and it wasn't all drinking games and, you know, puking in the backyard, but it was really heartfelt conversation on the couch and a lot of laughter anyway. And it was amazing that there was so much fear in her that I didn't even realize about me changing. But it taught me such an important lesson. When people react to you're not drinking, it's because they're afraid for themselves. They're afraid that you're going to become too good for them or that they won't measure up to you or that things won't be as fun or they won't know how to interact with you. And I reminded her, I was like, do you remember that? We were laughing behind, you know, the the playground when we were like seven years old. <laughs> we weren't drinking then. She's like, you're right. It, it wasn't ever the alcohol, but we think it is. Are you healthier since you've stopped drinking? I think not only am I healthier, I literally think I look younger nine years later. My teeth are whiter. My eyes are brighter. My skin is better. My hair is thicker. It is probably one of the most impressive vanity things you can do for yourself is to stop. Oh, I've, I've lost about 13 pounds. It's, it's incredible sort of across the board. And that happened really quickly. What about uh, thinking wise, psychologically? Yeah, alcohol, the, the function of alcohol in the brain is that it actually slows the synapses between the neurons. So it literally makes you think slower and slower and slower and slower until you're no longer conscious. They used to use alcohol as anesthetic in surgeries before they found safer alternatives. And so we imagine that we're more creative because our inhibitions are let down a little bit. But what's really true is that you can, you think slower. And so your ability to remember things and access your own brain definitely increases when you don't drink. So what are the steps that people can take? 
So I think the first and most important thing is if you feel like you're over drinking and you feel any sense of shame or guilt about it is to recognize that you're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. There's, you know, we've been given as a society this like alcohol on a silver platter as the answer for everything, right? It's the answer to stress. It's the answer to having more fun, to loosening up in the bedroom, everything. And so when you start to look at that critically and say, is that really true for me? Is Are those things really happening for me? So number one is to let yourself off the hook. Realize that you've been doing the best you can with the tools you have. And we've just been given this tool that you can start to question in your own life, is it the right tool or not? And so that's self-compassion. And then number two is curiosity without judgment. So looking at your drinking and saying, okay, well, why did I want to drink that much? Why did I overdo it? What else was going on with me? But when we judge ourselves, we shut down that curiosity. And so we don't actually allow that we can question this because we have this false idea in our minds that if we want to change our drinking, something must be wrong with us. We must be an alcoholic. It must be a problem. But I would love for us all to just collectively say, hey, like, let's just get curious. I love the word sober curious or mindful drinking. Let's just get curious about our behavior and see what works for us personally. As I was looking into this, uh, I saw a number of, let's say, you know, uh, The Naked Mind and also Dry January. Um, there were recommendations for those who are chemically dependent on alcohol to not, that this may not be f- for them because there's a lot, out, you know, they could have some withdrawal symptoms. What do you say about that? We got about a Absolutely. minute left. So big disclaimer, if you feel like you can't go a day without drinking, you want to check with your doctor to make sure you're tapering and you're doing all the right things because you can have serious symptoms. Now, again, that is a very small percentage of the population, less than 10% of excessive drinkers, according to the CDC. But if you feel like that's you, absolutely check with your doctor. Hmm. Uh, So, but for others... Curiosity. I mean, that, that, that's one of my favorite words, one of the things we try to do in this program. But that curiosity would seem to be just don't focus on the drinking as much as what comes afterwards and the mindset that you have. Absolutely, Scott. Mm. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And if you could leave a message with our audience, what would it be? Be kind to yourselves, be curious, and don't beat yourselves up. Mm. The Naked Mind is the book. There's more than just a book. Annie Grace is the author. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Scott.